following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, well, good morning. Hope you can hear me. My name is uh, Andrew. I'm the Associate Pastor at CCF. You're very welcome, especially if it's your first time. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to First uh, Peter. First Peter. I have to say, I stood there and just really enjoyed hearing everybody sing. Uh, I don't have any musical talent. When God gave out musical talent, I didn't get any. Uh, when I was a boy, I was thrown out of two school choirs because I was so bad at singing. Uh, so I can't judge whether you're musical or not because I don't have that ability. But what I can judge is the conviction that's in the singing. That's what makes singing. I know we have to sing in tune. Uh, but um, the, the conviction that comes across in the singing is the thing that re- I really notice that this is, we really believe this, we live by this, by these remarkable words. Uh, I um, will turn to First Peter in a second, but I heard uh, a while ago about uh, a man in England who was called to be a, a best man at a wedding. Uh, and he wrote to, uh, he sent a text to the, the, um, to the groom uh, and said to him, um, do you have a favourite verse that you'd like me to read out? Now this man who was the best man wasn't a believer, but the the bride and the groom were believers, so he thought he should really read a Bible verse out at the reception. Uh, And his friend uh, texted back uh, and gave him a particular verse. And it was this, it was 1 John 4.18, which says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This was the favourite verse of the, uh, of the groom. So that's 1 John 4, uh, 18. But knowing nothing of the Bible, he got his Johns mixed up. Uh, and um, he went to, when it came to the event, he went to John chapter 4 and verse 18. Not 1 John 4, 18, but John 4, 18. And he read these words. Um, The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you say is actually quite true, the words of Jesus. So you've got to know your way around the Bible. Anyway, let's come to uh, 1 John chapter 2. And our passage this morning is verses 4 to 12. And I found this quite hard to know what what title to give it, but in the end I settled for this. Rejected by men but accepted by God. So I've got three headings uh, for this passage. First of all, living in a pagan world. My second heading is um, the old temple and the new, which is verses 4 to 8. So the first title is really uh, an introduction. Second one is the old temple and the new. And third is the church, a holy nation. This passage of Peter is... um, It's full of richness, but actually it's a little bit complicated. You've got to work out what's going on. I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can for you. So, um, in recent Sundays, we've been thinking about uh, how Peter, the Apostle Peter, prepares his readers uh, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, to face persecution. Because persecution is about to come their way. And as I reflected on this passage over the last week and uh, over the years I've taught on this passage uh, several times, the thing that uh, came to my mind about understanding the passage was the word distinctiveness. So the early Christians were distinct 
but they were distinct in different senses. So they were distinct um, from the pagan society around them. Uh, They were different. They were kind of misfits um, from the world around them. They were aliens and strangers, as the NIV translates one of these verses. So they were distinct from the world because they belonged, uh, they were uh, different to the world. But they were distinct in another way. They were distinct because they belonged to God and they were precious to God. So, rejected by their society, but accepted by God, I think that's the theme of the passage. If you keep that in mind, then you'll understand it better. So, it's about 30 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and for the next 250 years, uh, Christians right across the Roman Empire will be persecuted by the state. So, this letter was written to help them survive and to stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of persecution. Now, Before we get into our text, I just want to remind you and and remind us as to why the early Christians were an offence to their pagan society, the Roman society in which they lived. This was the time of the Roman Empire, which dominated the horizon. So why were they an offence to the society around them? Well, lots of reasons, but one of them is this, that they lived in a pagan society. And in paganism... The, the, the distinguishing feature of paganism is that when you take something in the, in the world and you give it divine status, so you worship it, uh, and everything else depends upon that particular thing for success and meaning in life. So it could be like the Aztecs who took the sun and they worshipped the sun. They, they gave divine status to the sun. It could be that you take the whole of nature, nature paganism you could call it, and you make it divine. In fact, some modern-day environmentalism is very close to nature paganism. If you go to Stonehenge in England at the summer solstice, when the, on the 21st of June you meet lots of people who are druids and other types of pagans who welcome the sun, and they are nature paganists. They, they give divinity to nature. And you, you can understand why. It's not my subject this morning, but because nature ins- almost can inspire worship, and it's so beautiful. But of course, uh, far more important is the one who created nature. This big distinction between the one who made nature and nature itself. But another type of paganism that you find today, especially in the Western world, is when you, you, you give divine status to yourself. Uh, so you place yourself at the centre of reality. So your needs, your desires, your ambitions become the centre of all things. Uh, and um, this is not nature paganism, this is ego paganism. Ego paganism is really the a way to define the way that the West is moving in its thinking, that we are the centre of all things. We ascribe divinity to ourselves. Other forms of uh, paganism, it could be the dollar, you worship money, so the dollar or the pound or the euro becomes the central thing, the central means to happiness and meaning in life. So paganism is taking something in the world and giving it, giving it a kind of God status. Um, and of course when you realise that, you realise that the West... Uh, it's not secular at all. It's, it's a wash with idols and false gods of all kinds. We worship uh, deities that we create. Uh, one of the great myths, of course, of the secular society is that the West is secular. It's not secular at all. Um, but the point is that, that paganism can take numerous forms. Now, the Greeks and the Romans were kind of extreme paganists. So they had gods and goddesses for everything. Um, so Jupiter was the king of the gods, um, Minerva was the goddess of wisdom. Mars was the god of war. Cupid was the god of love. And as with all types of paganism, then the the key to human success in life is to keep the gods happy. 
whatever you give divine status to you. You've got to keep them happy. So you have to honour them. You have to make costly sacrifices. And if you do that, then the gods will prosper you. It's this kind of thing that you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's how the relationship between humans and the Greek and the Roman gods uh, was thought of. But of course, if you dishonour the gods, then they will take their revenge against you. And so what happened in the Roman Empire was that when an earthquake came or maybe a volcano erupted or a battle was lost by the, by the Roman army, then they didn't, they didn't say, or maybe this was just bad tactics, they might have said that, but it wasn't just bad tactics, so they'd lost a battle. It wasn't, they didn't think, oh, this is tectonic plates which has caused an earthquake or a volcano. They said, the gods are punishing us. And when that happened, the loyal citizens of Rome, they looked around for the disloyal ones, the ones who dishonoured the gods, the ones who were not in the temples offering the necessary sacrifices. And very often it was the Christians who they blamed because of their allegiance to Jesus. Uh, They had offended the gods of Rome and so they had to be punished. They were disloyal, they were traitors to the Roman Empire. And in decades to come, a bit later than maybe Peter was writing, but in decades to come, uh, the cult of Caesar arose. So to kind of unite the empire, the Roman Caesars gave themselves divine status. And they allowed you to worship any deity, more or less, providing you worship them first. And every year you had to publicly confess that Caesar was Lord. And the Christians, knowing that Jesus was Lord, they refused to give their allegiance to Caesar. And so for these kind of reasons, it was common for believers to be attacked by the local mob. Or they were detained by the state and they could be thrown to the lions in the gladiator games while thousands of people screamed for their blood. And thousands died in that way. You see, being a Christian wasn't some harmless hobby to these people. Believing in Jesus Christ was a matter of life and death for them. Uh, in many cases when you were baptised and you publicly agreed, confessed that you were going to follow Jesus then you were signing your own death warrant and so when we read First Peter it's good to keep all of that kind of background in mind so there was the beginnings of persecution but persecution was going to continue for a long time in the Roman Empire and of course right through the history of the church so Peter is preparing Christians for the dark days ahead so you shouldn't think of 1 Peter as a a nice theory book which is to be studied in the kind of comfort and peace of a, of a, seminary, a seminary library or a university library uh, where you have all these lovely commentaries um, which tell you about the book of Peter. It's not that kind of book. It's not a, a book that belongs in the library. It's a book that prepares people to die. That's what the book of First Peter is about. Now, uh, we may not be expecting to be eaten by lions Uh, in our lives but all of us will suffer at some point in our lives Um, and so whatever form our suffering takes then this letter can also be a a source of huge encouragement um, and help to us so how does so what does Peter say in this um, this passage in front of us well here's the essence of what I want to say is that Peter contrasts the believer's rejection by the world with their acceptance by God. Rejection by the world, acceptance by God. And the pattern that he uses is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was rejected by the world, but he was accepted by God. So that's my first heading, living in a pagan world. A bit of background to the letter. A bit of context. So secondly, the old temple 
and the new. So let's look at verse 4, and I'm going to read down to verse 8. So this is the old temple and the new. So Peter writes, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So, as I've said in previous weeks, I think that Peter was writing mainly to Gentiles. There's a big debate among, in the commentaries about whether he was writing to Gentiles or to Jews who'd become Christians. But it's interesting that in chapter 1, he writes to, the, uh, to his letter to those who had inherited an empty way of life from their forefathers. That doesn't sound like Judaism. It sounds like they had a kind of Gentile, pagan background. Um, but all the time in Peter's letter, you have to keep in mind his Jewishness, his biography, um, as Peter writes, he thinks out of the Old Testament. That's why you have to understand the Old Testament. I know a church in England and they've stopped teaching the Old Testament. If you don't understand the Old Testament, then the New Testament makes no sense to you. Uh, it's just illogical. But Peter is thinking out of the Old Testament. And his Old Testament heritage comes through this letter repeatedly. Now, for the Jewish people, there were lots of things that triggered a sense of their identity. It was people like Abraham and Moses and David. But it was also things that were part of the heritage of Israel. So one of them was the tabernacle, but another one was the temple. It was, um, it was one of the things that was central to how the Jewish people understood themselves. Of course, it still is today. It was central to Israel's history, especially Solomon's temple. There were three temples, really, unless you count two and three as being one but there was first of all Solomon's temple then there was a temple built in the days of Ezra and then there was Herod's temple in the New Testament times but the first one although it was smaller than the third one it was a remarkable temple Solomon's temple it was a remarkable uh, building, construction it was built with huge pieces of stone uh, and gold and precious stones were found in abundance it was a place where God himself dwelt with his people and a place where he was worshipped and where uh, the people offered sacrifices to find remission for their sins. And the days of Solomon, certainly the early days of Solomon before he got into idolatry, but the early, the early days of Solomon were considered to be the golden days of Israel's history. Um, and uh, in those days, the temple was central to the life of Israel and its very identity as a people. Now, if you've read the book of uh, Kings, First Kings, then you find out that the temple had to be built just right. It was built according to the pattern that God himself gave, just like the tabernacle. Um, now, I want you to keep all of that in mind when we think about what Peter says here, when he speaks of Christian people who are collectively God's temple, what we would call the church. So here in verse 4, uh, Jesus is called a living stone. In fact, in verses 6 and 7, 
Peter tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple. A cornerstone. So what's a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone is the first huge stone that builders in the ancient world would, would put into place when they began the task of constructing a building. And the rest of the structure depended upon that stone. Its positioning had to be exact. It had to be straight and true. If not, then the rest of the, of the building will be out of line. The first stone, the cornerstone, had to be perfectly in position. And Peter is saying that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the temple called the church. But he's a living stone. So he's not like the stones that made up Solomon's temple. Jesus is alive from the dead. He's a living stone. And all of the other stones that have been set in place around him, um, which cause the, the temple to be built up, they are also living stones, Christian believers. They are living because they have been raised from death to life uh, and are alive with Christ. So Peter's using this kind of metaphor of the temple for the church, but all the time, in, his, in the back of his mind, he's got Solomon's temple that he's reference, referencing against. But the point is that Jesus being the, the cornerstone of the new temple, he shapes the entire church. His identity is the risen Lord. His work at Calvary of redemption for, um, for his people. Um, he is the, uh, Jesus Christ is the, is the determining factor for what the whole construction of a temple will be. So much so that if you were to pull out the cornerstone... Uh, from the temple, then the whole structure would collapse. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. So here's the thing, that when a person puts their trust in Christ, another stone is quarried out of the pit of death and hell and sin and is cemented by grace into the temple of God, the church, the place in whose midst God himself comes to dwell. So this is how I think Peter's uh, thinking is working here the church is the new dwelling place of God on earth and that's of course why the church is the most significant thing that is going on in this universe and, and I think sadly it's true to say that many Christians don't seem to realise that but the church is central to the whole of reality and God's plans for everything so what is the church in a kind of different context well the church is the supernatural family of God through time and geography it is the only institution that will last for eternity. The church is the place where people meet with the living God. As we open up the scriptures, we lift Christ up together. And it's the place where he dwells and where he is manifest to the world. Of course, the church isn't just in its own temporal existence now. It has, it has a destiny. It has a breathtaking destiny to be the bride of the King of Heaven, Jesus, one day. But we're kind of jumping ahead of ourselves because Peter says that the cornerstone, Jesus, was rejected by men. So although Jesus was, when he came into the world, he was authorised, he was sent by the Father, he was, but he was, he was authorised by God for, the, for the, the work that he had. But he was rejected largely anyway by the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders who were the very people who were supposed to be the true builders of God's temple and, he, and God's kingdom. So they took the stone, Jesus, and they tossed it aside. They rejected Jesus in his teaching. They killed him, of course, with help from the Romans. 
Uh, he was rejected by his own people. Uh, John, in his gospel, he says, Jesus came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But despite him being tossed aside, the living stone, he got overruled. And he, he used the stone anyway, because this stone, Jesus, was chosen by him and very precious to him. He picked up the stone and uses it, used it as the cornerstone for a new temple, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, Peter says. He's the first of many who were raised to life, which now make up the people of God. So if he's the first stone of the temple, that is Jesus, and as we've seen, the temple is built up with the other living stones, then together, Jesus is the cornerstone, and the Christians together, they are built up into a spiritual house. Now here Peter gets kind of flexible with his metaphors. Because he then says that believers are collectively a holy priesthood. Uh, They offer spiritual sacrifices, no longer animal sacrifices as in the days of Solomon. They offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think these are probably a prayer. They are praises. They are good works. They offer uh, spiritual sacrifices to God in the temple. So the church is made up of people who offer themselves in the service of God. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 28, verse 6, which says, For for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, the only way you can understand this, I think, is to know something of the history of Israel again. Peter's thinking again out of his... His heritage, uh, his Jewishness. Uh, You see, in their history, the thing that the Jewish people put their trust in was often the temple in Jerusalem. Many times they felt it was safe to ignore the warnings of the prophets because they mistakenly believed that they were living in the shadow of the temple. And that kind of gave them safety and security. Even though the land was awash with injustice and idolatry and sin, they still believe that the existence of the temple made them safe. They were immune, immune from invasion. They thought with the temple in their midst that, uh, that God would never allow their holy land to be violated by some Gentile army. But the thing is that they were dead wrong. The temple didn't give them any security. And you will know that in the year 586 before Christ BC, the Babylonians came and they sacked the nation of Judah with its temple. And it was God's judgment upon them. They trusted in the temple, but they were put to shame. And interesting here, with Isaiah 28 in mind, uh, Peter insists that the spiritual temple he's talking about is different. All all who put their trust in this temple, this new temple, and especially in its cornerstone, Christ, they will never be put to shame. They will triumph. And there's context to this, which is right up to date for the New Testament believers at this time. 62 AD, perhaps, the letter was written. You see, in the past, the Gentiles destroyed the physical temple... Um, And as persecution is on the horizon for these uh, believers, other Gentiles, this time the Romans, will try to destroy God's spiritual temple. uh, His church, which is made up of Christian believers. But this temple, this is Peter's thought, his argument, 
This temple cannot be, cannot be destroyed because it's not made with hands. It is indestructible. It's a spiritual temple. So believing in this temple means that you will never be put to shame. It's indestructible. Of course, Christians can be killed. They were and they are today in huge numbers, but they live on with Christ. You see, the life of believers is far more than our physical bodies. Right down through the ages. Through the centuries, governments have tried to use fear to control people. And fear is a very powerful weapon, isn't it? I was watching a documentary about the, uh, the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, I, I watched a speech by Heinrich Himmler, who was the man who... was kind of Hitler's right-hand man. He uh, established the SS, uh, and he also organised the final solution, the killing of the Jewish people. And he, he, said, he, wrote, he said these words in a speech. He said, the best political weapon is the weapon of terror. Cruelty commands respect. Men may hate us, but we don't ask for their love, only for their fear. Chilling words, aren't they? Terrible words. But can you see the power of fear to control people? So it was very similar with the Romans. They, they sought to eradicate Christianity through fear. Fear the consequences of what they would do to you if you didn't follow Caesar and worship the gods of Rome. It's interesting that if, when you read as, uh, Tom Wright, who is a British theologian, he wrote um, a book on the resurrection of the Son of God. If you ever doubt the resurrection, read his book. It's a huge book, but you kind of get halfway through and you suddenly think, Jesus rose from the dead. There is no other explanation uh, from the fact that he really did rise physically, bodily, from the dead. But, but in, in Tom Wright's book, he argues that there is one doctrine that oppressive governments through the centuries, oppressive governments through the centuries, have hated more than any other, and it's the doctrine of, of resurrection. Because he says it, resurrection diminishes hugely fear from Christian believers because they know that they will be, right, that they will be raised with Christ to eternal life. So it's a very um, perceptive remark. Resurrection is the antithesis of fear. But let's think a little bit more about Christ, the cornerstone of the temple, the church. So Peter writes in verse 7 that to those who believe, he is precious... So, Christ is precious to believers. Uh, previously, Peter had said in chapter 1 that he said, having not seen him, you love him. That he's saying to, talking to the believers. That wasn't true of him. Jesus, Peter had seen Jesus, of course. But he was saying of the believers, you've not seen him, but you love him. He's precious to you. But then Peter says that he's not precious to everybody. Uh, and for those who reject him, in verse 8, he says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. And then he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here before we move on, we have, a, we have a warning and we need to hear that too. You see, to reject Jesus, who is the centre of all reality, the cornerstone not only of the church but of all reality, uh, to dismiss him, to toss him aside is the most dangerous thing we can ever do. The result is a terrible fall. Um, and of course... Uh, you know, uh, we live in societies that think that believing in Jesus is some kind of a lifestyle choice. The Bible never thinks like that. Believing in Jesus is life. Denying him is death. Uh, and um, so if you reject him, then there are terrible consequences. So the nation of Israel, 
in rejecting Christ, they, they kind of tossed him aside. Um, and by doing so, they kind of chose their destiny. They were destined to do so, uh, Peter says. I don't think it was kind of they were predestined to do so. They rejected Christ and they were, and so they chose their own destiny. And you see, within five or six years of this letter uh, being written, the nation of Israel and its temple was obliterated by the Romans. 67 AD was, 68 AD was the um, Jewish revolt, revolt and they rose up against the Romans and they pushed them out of the country and then the Romans came back two years later under Titus, I think, uh, and they surrounded Jerusalem and they battered down the wall and they came in and they uh, destroyed the nation. They, they, they found the temple. The Jews had uh, hidden their gold between the great pieces of stone that built up, made up the temple uh, as a way of trying to hide their, their treasure. And the Romans took the temple down stone by stone. They destroyed the temple. See, the thing is that the Jews, they put their their trust in a temple that could be destroyed. But that temple was now redundant. It was eliminated by the Romans because now there's only one true temple, which is Christ. He is the true temple. He is the meeting point between God and human beings. Jesus said, didn't he destroy this temple? John chapter 4, 3. Uh, and I will raise it up again in three days. There's only one temple now. So that's kind of summary of how I think Peter's thinking goes in these verses, how his thinking travels. So the early believers that Peter was writing to were facing rejection from their pagan society and they were to find comfort and strength by remembering that Jesus was also rejected just like they're about to be by their pagan society. But the stone that the builders rejected is taken up by God and he becomes the cornerstone of a new indestructible temple, the church, which is made up of living stones, believers. And in that temple, God himself comes to dwell. So that's my second heading, the old temple and the new. Then we come to the second half of our passage, verses 9 to 12. So my third heading is the church, a holy nation. So in verse 9, Peter says, but you... So Peter, Peter's been speaking of those that stumble on the stone that is Christ. They've rejected the stone, they've rejected him, the Jews rejected Jesus, but he contrasts his readers to them. He says, but you're different. Um, you're not like the ones who tossed Jesus aside. You find Christ precious. And in verse 9 he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. When I was a child, I used to sing, we used to sing these words in church almost every week and I could just hear them ringing in my ears now. But you are a chosen race, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, sorry, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I used to uh, work with an American... Bible teacher in Africa uh, teaching the Bible to uh, to, uh, to students, um, many men who would be pastors. We used, to, we used to teach together. And he used to say that the idea of, of church is, a, is, is a, a Pauline idea. In other words, it's associated with the Apostle Paul, um, especially, say, in the book of Ephesians. Paul talks about the church a lot. 
And, and I kind of agree with him up to a point. It is, the church uh, is really a, a Pauline idea. Um, but actually, Peter has a lot to say about the church as well um, in his two letters. Um, and when you read these verses here, you find some of the most important truths about the church anywhere in the New Testament. So I want to reinstate Peter alongside Paul as giving us hugely important information about the church and understanding about the church. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of church, the word church. Maybe you think of buildings where believers meet. Maybe you think of steeples, ornate architecture, pews, pulpits. Um, but none of that is very helpful, really. The, the Greek word is ecclesia, that we translate as church. It's really a legacy of the, of the King James Bible. When was the King James Bible? 1604? 1606, maybe. Um, but it was really an Anglican translation of the Bible. And um, the word church in Old English, it's, it has roots uh, in Old English. Um, it really means the Lord's house, which really is a kind of building word to do with a physical building, church. Um, but Ecclesia is better translated as, as a called out assembly or a congregation. It's, it's much more of a people word, not a building word. Does that make sense? And in fact, I, I was looking at William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, which, of course, he gave his life for. But William Tyndale uh, translated the, uh, the Bible 80 years before the King James Version. Um, and, um, and in there, he translates the word for ecclesia as congregation. Much more kind of people word than a building word. But how does... Peter help us to understand the nature of the church because he does he helps us understand the nature of the church here in a very profound way he takes us again back to his own Jewish history and he takes us back to Exodus 19 that time when uh, the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai and God kind of takes the nation of Israel to himself to be his own people alright so it's like God cut for himself a slice of people from the cake called humanity and he said they're mine the Jewish people the Israelites or the Hebrews as they were in those days they're my people so the, the Hebrews had been redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt and they were to be a special people a holy people who were set apart for God people of God's own possession and what Peter does here is he, he boldly transfers or uh, if you're a dispensationalist, I don't want to offend you, um, but he, he kind of, you, if you're a dispensationalist, you might say that he also adds to the church that special status. If you're not a dispensationalist, you, you might say that he transfers that special status from the Jews to the church. And he says, uh, he's, he's speaking to a largely Gentile gathering of people, he says, you are God's people, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. So these things that, he, that God spoke to Israel all those years ago at Sinai, he speaks them to the church. Just to kind of clarify for you, so dispensationists believe that in the history of God's dealings with the world and salvation history, there were two peoples. There was the Jewish people and the and the church, who are two distinct people who kind of, uh, they live in parallel to each other and God is involved with both of them. Whereas people who are not dispensationists, perhaps more covenantal, new covenantal, tend to believe that 
Um, the church is the fulfilment of all the promises to ancient Israel. Not the replacement, that's kind of misunderstanding. But a kind of fulfilment of all that Israel was is, uh, is fulfilled in the church. Alright? Um, so, what do these terms mean? He says, you are God's holy people, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a people for his own possession. So what do these terms mean? Well, let's begin with nation. So when Peter says that you are a holy nation or a nation, he doesn't mean that the church has any geographical territory, obviously, like Israel did. But it is a nation in the sense that the church has one sovereign, one king, to whom it submits and takes its authority and lead. King Jesus, who is the Lord of Lords and the King of all kings. That's the sense in which the church is a, is a nation. Um, but it, it's vital to note that the nation is not, this nation that he's talking about, the church, is not just any nation. It, it's a holy nation. It's holy because it belongs to God himself. A holy doesn't mean righteous, really. It means set apart. So the church is set apart for God. It's consecrated and separated out from the nations for God. This is the cutting of the piece of, of cake of all of humanity. God takes a piece for himself. says, this is mine. These people are mine. See, the church of Jesus Christ is a holy nation from among all the nations. It is, the church is a new nation. As some of you will know, um, Francis Schaeffer, who was an American pastor and apologist he was kind of active in the 50s and 60s and 70s, he died in 1984 but uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, pastored um, churches, three churches in America in the 1950s and 60s um, and in, his, in the churches where he pastored he refused to have the stars and stripes flag in his church this caused huge anger amongst his congregation but he wouldn't have the American flag flying in his church because he said we are a new nation we are the church of Jesus Christ but he was right it would be wrong to have any nationality flying here wouldn't it even though we're made up of people from all over the world because our allegiance is to Jesus he is our king we are a new holy nation the church the church transcends every nationality and and the church is to be our first allegiance even though we do have allegiances to our country, so that's not wrong. But our first allegiance is to Jesus. So, this is not my topic this morning, but I, um, I'm too old now. But if I had to, was called up to fight for my country, I would fight for my country if it was a just cause. But if the cause of my country went against the cause of Christ, I wouldn't fight. Because my first allegiance is to Jesus. So, Peter says, you are a, uh, then he says, you are a chosen people. You're, he's, the nation of Israel was, sorry, the church, like Israel, was chosen from other nations. But he also says you are a royal priesthood. Why is the church a royal priesthood? Because the church offers worship to God, as we've done this morning. It offers prayer and praises to God. Um, it has a Godward relationship before it has a, a, a human relationship. So our allegiance and our Duty is first upwards, it's vertical, before it's horizontal. But I do have a responsibility to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, but my first allegiance is, is upwards to Christ. Um, so he says you are God's own possession. 
Um, and um, it, when Peter talks about this idea that you are God's possession, he, he takes a Hebrew word uh, which was used of the Jewish people and he translates it into Greek. And it, it really means, uh, it, it's a word that's used of something that is exclusively yours, in this case God's, that you don't share with anything else. So when I was at seminary in England, one of my professors used to, when he talked about this particular word, he used to say, it's a bit like my toothbrush. Uh, It's my toothbrush, it doesn't belong to anybody else. It's exclusively mine. So when Peter talks about this, that you're a people of, of God's own possession, that the church is exclusively his. He's exclusive possession of it. And that's what... Israel was to God and what the church is to God today. Now there's so much more we could say about this, but you might say, well, why is this important? I think it's important because I think we have far too low, generally we have far too low a view of the church. As I said before, the the church is the most important thing that's going on in this universe. But you see, as Peter addresses these believers who are soon to face the wrath of Rome... They were to be fortified in a realisation of this incredible, remarkable identity and realise just how privileged that they were to be part of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. They were rejected by their society, but they were loved by God. There's very little that can fortify our identity like knowing who we truly are and the greatest privilege we can ever have in all the world is to be part of the church of Jesus. We can cope with being rejected by anybody if we belong to God. So they're rejected by their society, but they are loved by God. You see, although God loves the world, there is little doubt that he reserves a unique love for his people, the church. And God's love towards the church uh, is warm and tender and full of affection. You know, there's a sense in which Everybody knows God in some general sense. Uh, Even when you read Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, you sense that he has some idea of God because he just wants to hate God all the time. It's very difficult to hate something that you don't even know exists. So even if you want to deny God's existence, there is some sense of God. Or you might acknowledge that God is a creator or he's kind of the first cause in the universe. But for the chosen race, uh, the church, there is something different, which is different to a kind of general idea of God. There is intimacy with God. Because you see, God invites his people not to call him God, but to call him Father. It it worries me enormously when I I was speaking to some students in England, and I heard all the prayers of the students, and I was thinking, they don't call God Father the greatest privilege that we have, which is that intimacy with God that he treats us as as family, as sons and daughters. There's an intimacy when we cry, Abba, Father, which is the most precious thing in all the world. You know, the difference between calling God God and calling God Father is the difference between the life of a beggar and the life of a king. So here is their new identity. It was to fortify them for the days ahead. They were not a lost people, but they were a people who belonged to the Father. They were his holy people. And what were they to do? I'm going to stop in two minutes. 
they were to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvellous light. So this is the church's task. It's to declare to the world the character of God. The church's task is to not only declare to the world the character of God, but it is to declare to the world that God is a saving God who saves. So then Peter writes in verse 11, Beloved, or beloved, I urge you, kind of my treasured people, I urge you as uh, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So I'm not going to spend time on here but just going to give you a, a sense of how Peter's mind goes. Peter's thinking is something like this that if you are citizens of this new holy nation then it has implications for how you live. And he really says that if you are one of this new holy nation, God's people, then you can expect to fight a war, but not just one war, fight a war on two fronts, two wars. You can expect to fight a war against sin within, but also you're fighting a war publicly because people, pagans, are watching you. And he says it's possible we have to... So this privilege of being part of the holy nation is a great privilege but we also have to watch ourselves that we subdue and put to death the sin in our lives that we might live honourably before God worthy of being part of the new nation but also that he says we can live in such a way that this remarkable redemptive life that we are called to live is a testimony to those on the outside so they might see how we live and say surely God is among them they're God's people. I have a friend and he was mocked for years in his office for being a Christian. Literally, I think for about nine years he was mocked. And then one day this man, one of the chief mockers came to see him and he said, you've got something I haven't got. I believe the God you worship is real and true. And this man became a Christian, he became an evangelist. All because he, he witnessed such a quality of life in this man who was mocked that he believed the gospel that's what Peter's talking about you've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand for more information please view our website at www.ccfth.org